Good morning, everyone. There we go. PowerPoint up. Excellent. So, we're looking, continuing our series of running the race, looking uh, this week at running to the tomb, the proof for God's people. There's another passage this week with a lot of running around in it that we need to decipher. So, just going to go through uh, the text and sort of expand on the story a little bit to start with. If we look first, to start with, in verses 1 and 2, we've got Mary. And she's kind of running because she doesn't know what to do in the end. She visits the tomb quite early in the morning. It's still dark, so maybe four, five, six o'clock in the morning. And she's probably with some other women, possibly going to anoint the body of Jesus. But she turns up and she sees that the stone has been removed. And she's not sure what to do. So she runs off, which is kind of a reasonable response, I think. Culturally for us, we don't go and visit the graves of our friends in the middle of the night. But I think if we did, and we turned up and the grave was open, I'd probably run away. I don't know about, it seems like a quite a sensible response. And she runs off to Peter, running, I think, because she doesn't know what to do. She says to him, we don't know what has happened to the body. She's almost running, saying, Peter, help us out here. I don't know what to do, so I'm running to you, hoping that you might be able to offer some insight. And then we have Peter and John. They're running, not knowing what they're going to find. I think sometimes we have that in life, don't we? we? We hear a cry or a shout or a noise or some vague news that we can't quite understand. We don't know what's happened, but all we know is we need to run and try and find out what has happened. Now, a light-hearted example I could think of in our life of when that might happen is, uh, I don't know if this is just a me thing or it's a man thing. Maybe we can have a, a little poll at the end to find out. But sometimes when I'm cooking in the kitchen, I'll, I'll open a cupboard and I'll see a pan that I need. And it might be right at the bottom of this tall stack of pans. And I look at it and think, how shall I address this situation? And I just yank it out. <laughs> yeah, so... Just from the reaction, I'm going to say that's a man thing, not a me thing. And then the other pans rearrange themselves. Uh, and then I get Steph running into the kitchen. And she's like Peter and John here. She's running, not knowing what she's going to find. So there's been a noise, and she knows something's happened. But she needs to run and find out what. She goes, what's going on? So just getting a pan out. She goes, all right. <laughs> so we've got Peter and John. They're running, not knowing what they're going to find. They know something's happened but they don't know what. And so John's quicker. He gets to the tomb first, and, but he's a bit more cautious. He kind of peeks in. He sees the, sees the strips of linen, but he stays outside. And then Peter goes in, and he's just straight in. There's no messing around. Straight in to have a look. But then John follows up, and although he's second, he gets a grasp on the situation a bit quicker because he believes I find it a strange contrast of the reactions of John and Peter in their caution and sort of going straight in because as far as we know from the Gospels, John was the only disciple who stayed faithful to Jesus at the cross, whereas Peter, we know, is quite fresh from just denying Jesus three times. Yet John 
is more cautious and Peter goes straight in, which I find strange because from a human perspective, we would think Peter would have more to fear from Jesus if he's risen. You can kind of imagine if the risen Jesus was in the tomb, you could expect John to go in, Jesus to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, you've been with me. And Peter goes in and says, ah, Peter, come into my office, I need a word with you. <laughs> but yet, for some reason, Peter is, well, Peter is Peter. The more we read about Peter, we know that despite the fact he's just denied Jesus three times, he's still going to go charging in to try and work out what's going on. But even though John's entered the tomb second, he gets a grasp on the situation much quicker. It says he believes, he understands. And we're not sure whether this is because of the physical evidence that's in front of him, or maybe it's some spiritual insight that's given to him. We do know it's not because of the predictions of the scriptures, because John himself, when writing, says he hasn't understood the scriptural predictions yet. But for whatever reason, whether it's the evidence in front of him or some spiritual revelation, he understands when Peter comes. Now, it almost goes without saying that the resurrection is one of the most important events in the Bible. But I just want to stop for a moment to consider why that is the case. Now, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this when presenting the character of Jesus. He says, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, for anyone with a good enough memory, you'll know I quoted the same book in my last talk, not because I'm a C.S. Lewis addict, it's because I'm a slow reader. <laughs> I normally fall asleep after reading about three pages each night, so I'm about two books a year <laughs> is me. So maybe I'll have got past me a Christianity by the time I next talk to you. But I thought that quote was quite apt because it really just demonstrates why the resurrection is so important. Because the resurrection is the moment that defines who Jesus is. Without the resurrection, he might be this madman or this demon, or something else. The resurrection says that he's not just a crazy guy that managed to get himself killed. He's not a demon that they were right to put to death. He is the Son of God. The resurrection defines Jesus' identity. It's the one thing that gives us the proof that he is who he says he was. And there's four lines of proof that we can get out of this uh, passage that we're looking at today for the resurrection and Jesus being the Son of God. Firstly, we have witness. We have the witness of the gospel writers who we're looking at today and also the other early believers who saw the risen Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he appeared to over 500 people who had seen him. And we have the witness of all the, the Christians throughout the ages who have seen and believed in Jesus. We look at Paul on the road to Damascus, one of the first people who didn't see Jesus in bodily form, but he certainly encountered the risen Jesus. He said, who are you? And the voice said to him, I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. And we have the witness of all those around us in church today, up and down the country, all around the world who've had an encounter with Jesus. And we have the empty tomb, 
what are the gospel writers here witnessing to? They're witnessing to the fact that the tomb was empty, which poses the question, if the tomb's empty, where has Jesus gone? (coughs) Now, we know it's been established fact for a long time that Jesus is a historical character. He definitely existed. Whether you believe he's the Son of God or not, historically and academically, he is a person that we know existed. And actually, I think there is a lot of evidence to suggest that historically, as well as biblically, the tomb was empty as well. If we look in Matthew 28, we're told the story of uh, the chief priest bribing uh, the guards who were standing guard over Jesus' tomb to say that the disciples came in the night and stole the body away. Why is this? Because the chief priests, they weren't ready to accept the resurrection, but they couldn't refute the empty tomb. They had to try and come up with another story to explain away the empty tomb. And there's quite a raging debate even today about these kind of things. And whilst I was preparing, I came across uh, the writings of someone called Jeffrey Lauder, who's quite a prominent atheist and has a lot of correspondence with prominent Christians about these sort of things. And he was writing a paper um, refuting some of the arguments for the empty tomb. But even in his conclusion, he said... I have to accept that there is a slightly better than 50% chance that the tomb historically was empty. And he says that readers should be unsure and uncertain as to whether the tomb was empty. So from an academic and historical perspective, it is certainly possible, if not likely, that the tomb was empty. And we have that to stand on, as well as the biblical evidence for the empty tomb. Which gives us the question, what will we make of this? If Jesus lived and died and the tomb that he was put in was empty, it is a question that us here in the church and everyone in the world needs to think about. Who was Jesus? Where did he go? And there's a number of theories for that that are put forward as well as the resurrection. As we said, from Matthew 28... Some people thought the body was stolen. Some people thought there was grave robbers who came and took the body. But the other evidence we have for the theory of the resurrection is the linen, which we read in uh, today's passage, was left in a neat fashion, the head cloth and the body cloth still separate, as though a body had just come out of them. Now, that is hard to explain. I think if the disciples had come and stolen the body, or if grave robbers had come in the night, Wouldn't it have just been easier to take the body with the wrappings? Why unwrap the body and then try and lay it back out again? If anyone's uh, had a chocolate from a quality street and then you try and get the wrapper to look like it's still got a chocolate in it, it's it's kind of like that. I've got some pictures here which I found of various adaptions of the linen. On the left-hand side, you've got an image of what someone wrapped up might be. On the bottom, a cartoon of how the... um, the linen was left. And on the top and the right is pictures depicting the story of Lazarus, who in, uh, here in John 11 was raised to life by Jesus. And he came out of his tomb wrapped in his linen because he couldn't get himself out of it. He had to have other people come and help him out of the linen after he'd been raised. And yeah, I can imagine, for me anyway, I can't see how you could unwrap a body and then get the linen to look like it was wrapping around the body again, which is what the disciples found. So the linen is a really key proof for us. Oh, back there. 
And then finally, we also have scripture, which John alludes to in our reading today. And he looks, says this is a, a later revelation. He says that he believed, he went into the tomb and believed, but he hadn't understood the scriptures yet. Um, but when we, with the wonderful hindsight of 2,000 years of theological insight, we now can see there's so many references in the scriptures to Jesus having to rise from the dead. And it's a story that really comes together. For example, we've got Psalm 1610. It says, you will not let your faithful one see decay. Isaiah 52:11. after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. And actually the words of Jesus himself predicting his own death and resurrection, which is Matthew 12:40. Jesus says, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and nights. The more we read the Bible, the more we see it pointing towards the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that astounding coming together of thousands of years of writing to give a, a story that all points to one thing is quite impressive proof for us, I think. But why is this idea of proof important to this concept of running the race that we're looking at? Now, in Hebrews 12, verse 2, we read that in order not to grow weary and lose heart when running the race, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. But that only works if we've got some proof that Jesus is worth fixing our eyes on. Returning to that quote from C.S. Lewis, if he's a madman, a fool, or a demon, he's not going to be any use to us. We need to convince ourselves that he is the Son of God so we can fix our eyes on him and then we'll get the endurance we need to run this race. And as I was preparing for this, I felt like we have this excellent historical and biblical proof. But actually, Jesus also wants to encounter each and every one of us on a daily basis to provide the ongoing proof that we need to run this race that's set before us. And I just felt prompted to share with you one of the moments, of, or the first real moment of proof that came to me in my life, that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And for me, I don't know if any of you have had a moment like this, but for me, this was the moment where I knew, after this, no matter what, I couldn't, couldn't think that God didn't exist, because once you've encountered him, in a really profound way, you just know that you can't go back. And for me, that happened 11 years ago at a, a Christian youth camp called Soul Survivor that a number of you would have heard of. I don't really know how I ended up going, but I know for the first two and a half days, I thought I was surrounded by lunatics that took it all a bit seriously. And I thought, church on a Sunday is okay, but really, two two-hour services a day, it's a bit much, isn't it? A bit too much singing and arm raising and jumping around. I thought, no, not for me. I'll uh, grin and bear it for a week and then go home and try and forget it ever happened. But then one evening as the preacher was speaking, I just felt the Holy Spirit come over me in a way I couldn't explain. And for some reason I knew I was living my life in the wrong way, but I also knew that there was forgiveness and a new life to be found in Jesus. And further proof for me, was this caused quite an emotional response in me, which is quite unusual for me, which kind of was a bit of a proof that it was something beyond myself. I'm the sort of person, I spent my life people saying, smile for a photograph, I am smiling. <laughs> <laughs> What's the matter with you? 
nothing. This is just how I look. <laughs> I'm not, not uh, open to profound emotional responses. But this experience raised up an emotional response in me. And then as the... We had with us that year on that trip the wonderful Tom Warmington, who's a member of this church for a long time and in notice, as we know, is being ordained soon. And he just comforted me during that experience. And through him, I felt the Father's love flowing to me in a way that I couldn't explain and didn't know what to do with. But I knew from that moment on, whatever happened in life through the ups and downs, I couldn't say God wasn't real because there was something in that that was more than just me. And since then, God's gone on to walk with me and continue to prove who he is and that he's with me. And I just wonder where you are today. Have, have you had a recent experience of proof that's built up your faith that you should be thankful for? Or perhaps the proof you needed was given a long time ago, but it's starting to fade away now. Or maybe you're never sure you even had the convincing proof you needed that God is real. But whichever category you fall into, I believe we can encounter the risen Christ today. And once we put our faith in him, we will have the endurance we need to run this race that's set before us. So I'm going to end in prayer in a moment. But as I pray that closing prayer, I just encourage you to reflect on the proof that you've been given throughout your life. Or if you are struggling today to find the proof you need to set your hope in Jesus, then why not come forward for prayer this morning? Or in the quiet of your own heart, ask God to reveal himself to you over these coming days and weeks. Because God is here amongst us. He is risen and he does want to meet with his people, encounter them, have a relationship with them and walk with them. So Father God, we thank you for providing the proof for your people that you are a loving father who calls us his children by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us and then raising him to life. And today we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would raise up in us new shoots of faith that we might run the race marked out for us with endurance and strength. Lord, we ask this in the power of your mighty name. Amen.